This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to the Scholarly Podcast. My name is Dr. Stephanie Maximus, and I am a medical educator in the Division of Pulmonary, Allergy, and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. And today, I'll be discussing a new original piece of research titled Simulation-Based Assessment to Measure Competence in Mechanical Ventilation Among Residents with our guest, Dr. Juliana Ferreira. Dr. Ferreira is an associate professor at the University of Sao Paulo and attending physician at the respiratory ICU at the Heart Institute in the University of Sao Paulo Medical School in Brazil. She is also co-director of the ATS NECOR program in Latin America, and she has dedicated her career to building research capacity for low and middle income countries, and her teaching and research are focused on mechanical ventilation, patient ventilator interactions, and global health. She's also a fellow podcaster for this ATS scholarly podcast, so it's a fun opportunity for the two of us to chat. So welcome today, Dr. Ferreira, and I'm looking forward to this conversation with you. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's really fun to be on, on the other side of the scholarly, so great to be here. Yeah. So just to introduce your paper, I found this to be a really important study, and just to kind of give our listeners some background, this I thought was really a neat project because you mentioned in your discussion and in your introduction the relevance of teaching mechanical ventilation to generalists, since really at the end of the day, only a minority of patients that are treated with mechanical ventilation are managed by intensivists. Most of the time, they're actually managed by generalists, which emphasizes the importance of making sure that all of our residents coming through the intensive care unit actually learn these basics, and not only should we focus our efforts on intensivists or or fellows going into pulmonary medicine. And you also point out that there's a lot of variation in curricula, which I believe is probably even more so true at the residency level, even more than the fellowship level. And then in the past studies, trainees have reported low confidence in managing mechanical ventilation. And it sounds like there are a lot of exams out there looking at how do we measure mechanical ventilation aptitude, but nothing explicitly assessing their cognitive and psychomotor skills, which are at the end of the day, most applicable at the bedside. So this, what you did here was really novel work. So I thought it was important for us to to highlight. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about the backstory of this study. Like what questions did you have that sparked the development of this whole project? Yeah, I, I guess you already touched on it. We were responsible for training residents, but also pulmonary critical care fellows and in our respiratory ICU. And I think it's really critical that they learn basic skills of mechanical ventilation. If even the residents that intend to go to other areas, at the end of the day, many of these residents will work and care for patients under mechanical ventilation. And we had this, this impression that sometimes residents would maybe have the theoretical concepts correct. So they, for example, they know that all ARDS patients should receive low tidal volume ventilation. But then at the bedside, we would see, and they would, maybe if we, we, we did a test, they would get the correct answer because they know this is what they should be doing. But when they are at the bedside, they might not implement this concept, either because they don't diagnose ARDS correctly or more frequently because they, 
don't really implement all the adjustments that they need to to implement low tidal volume using this example. So we, we had this impression that sometimes residents know the concept, but this is a very complex set of skills, right? Mechanical ventilation is not like a, a dose of a medication that could be easier to just implement if you know how to do it. So we wanted to develop an assessment that would tell us what are the gaps for these residents as they come to our ICU so we could change the curricula to address those gaps. And also, understand when what types of knowledge they had that could be that could be measured with the, with a multiple tests or in which ones would be better understood if we used a practical examination in this case a simulation based examination yeah so what was in place before this intervention so before we used a, a multiple test assessment and we used we had several versions over the years we had one that was used as a, a medical education project that has been published in which we based the, one of the tests that we applied during this project. So we, would, we were basically doing multiple tests at the end of the rotation and residents tend to, to do really well on this examination. But in the end, we would see that sometimes they were failing to implement some of the critical components or skills when they were carrying, when they were uh, at the bedside and responsible for, for example, making adjustments to the ventilator. And then since this was an assessment that you built, a simulation-based assessment, was the approach to it mostly to say, okay, this is, we're going to use this purely as an assessment tool to understand where their gaps are, as you mentioned, or also as an education tool in and of itself? Like, was this simulation used as an actual method for teaching as well? That's, that's a great question. And uh, I would say for this project, we, we used it mostly for, for an assessment, but I, I think even unintentionally, it becomes a, a, a teaching strategy, right? A teaching tool, because residents realize that one of the things that we're looking at, or we're trying to teach them is how to implement any of the concepts that we, we try to teach about mechanical ventilation when they are actually making adjustments to the ventilator. So we, we didn't intend to use it as a teaching tool, but I think this is something we want to do in the next project and it's something we're trying to, to implement even outside of our research project in our ICU, using simulation to, and in the beginning of the rotation, you use it as an assessment. And then when you give feedback, and, and you offer another opportunity to, to be around the simulator, then you use this, the same approach to teach the residents how to actually make changes to the ventilator and how they implement what they think they know or what they already really know at the bedside or in this case at the, vent, at the simulator. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of the neat things about simulation or I mean any assessment tool, but simulation especially is that sort of surprise that a, a learner or a trainee can have in the moment where you think you know the things, but then something about that translation to application at, at the bedside is harder than it turns out to be on, on a multiple choice exam or a written exam. And it's hard to translate that teaching. So it's a nice side effect of, of an assessment that it also conveys some of that, some of that teaching even by accident. I agree. And I, I think that the realization when, when, the, when the 
trainee is there and, and, and he or she realizes, oops, I don't know, I don't really know what to do, or I decrease the tidal volume and now the patient has, I don't know, a lot of acidosis, what do I mm-hmm. do? So I think this realization that it's more complex than you thought it was, I think it's, I mean, you, you learn right there because then mm-hmm. you realize I have to think this, uh, I have to think another step ahead or I have to, I have to bring other concepts that I had, for example, how to manage uh, respiratory acidosis when I'm trying to implement low tidal volume ventilation. So I think they will get a, a broader view of that topic, not just like the uh, isolated concepts that they, they, they might learn during a didactic session. And especially when we try to measure knowledge using a multiple choice questions. Looking at how the research study was designed, this simulation-based assessment you all did at the beginning of their ICU rotation, as opposed to at the end. So how did the their going through this at the beginning of their rotation sort of play out on their, maybe their experience in the rotation, or did it inform the way then that you or other educators in their ICU were able to to teach about the topics that you found they were scoring lower on? Yeah, that's that's a great question and one that the reviewers were really asking us. Why did we choose to do this at the beginning? And we, we actually debated a lot when to, to apply the simulation assessment. So we could do it at the beginning or at the end or both. The reason we chose to do it at the beginning is because I think for our ICU, we were really interested in, in knowing what gaps they had, because these residents, they rotate in our ICU in the second year of residence. So residency in Brazil is a little different from the US. So we do two years of what looks like an internal medicine residency. And then when they they go into pulmonary critical care, for example, it's another two years. So these residents rotate in our ICU in the second year. So they've been they have had other ICU rotations before, but they don't on those other rotations, they would see patients under mechanical ventilation, sure, but the, the didactics were not focused on mechanical ventilation because that's our, our goal here at the University of Sao Paulo. So we wanted to know what they didn't know yet and were, what were the biggest gaps to address this during the, during the rotation. So this was the main driver for this project and that's why we chose, I mean, it was a hard choice between doing it before the beginning or at the end of the rotation, and then we could have done it twice. We we decided not to for two reasons. We were a little bit concerned that residents might remember, uh, recall the cases, and then would look like they learned a lot during the rotation, but it's just that they learned how to do the test. And also we were a little worried that the adherence could decrease because, I mean, it takes an hour to take this test, and you, you, you have to do one resident at a time to make sure that that the, the person who's being examined ha- has to make all the decisions. So at the end of the day, after like waiting all the possibilities, we decided to do it at the beginning, thinking that this was the best application for what we needed, which was to inform curriculum changes and, and what, what were the gaps that we needed to address in a rotation that was focusing especially on teaching mechanical ventilation. And so then seeing how they scored, I guess, did you have the information about how they scored leading into their rotation where you could make the changes immediately or now after looking at the analysis, now you know where the gaps are. And so going into the next academic year, you can make changes in the curricula. Is that more how it played out? 
Yeah, we, we chose not to I mean, formally look into the results during, with, during the um, data collection, but of course, we had only two examiners, two people who were trained to do the examination. We, we didn't want to have a, a group, a very large group. And then, of course, they would tell me, oh, my God, they, I mean, you have to focus on this or you have to focus on that. But so informally, I, I kind of knew, the, for example, that they were having trouble measuring pulmonary mechanics making mistakes when they were measuring compliance and resistance. So this was something that informally I heard and I tried to implement, but the whole point was having accumulated data to see what kinds of gaps are really common. And then that's, that's the change that we are addressing right now after we have these results. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's helpful to know as you build something for the next class of residents to come through. Part of your project was making the assessment in the first place, building the scenarios and the OSCEs. And I love that the group included both physician experts as well as respiratory therapists, of course, who are really experts at the ventilator and work so closely with us. So can you tell me a little bit about how this modified Delphi process went for developing the simulation-based assessment? What were the stages and what was your experience of that? Well, I should have said this in the beginning that this is the, the PhD thesis of one of my students. So, so the first author, Fatima Hayashi, she's a respiratory therapist and she was in the PhD program. She, she defended her thesis on this project and it was in, in large part a team idea. We, we, we felt physicians and, and respiratory therapists in our ICU that we should be that we, we needed a, a better tool to assess knowledge. And then that's why we wanted to do this as a team. So the Delphi, the Delphi process, we have, we use a lot of OSIS here at the University of Sao Paulo. So the residents are used to doing OSIS, mm -hmm. but I mean, the OSIS are of course on, on several other topics and there were no records of OSIS with mechanical ventilation. And this is also something new that we wanted to do. So we created the scenarios based on, on scenarios we had used in the past, for example, and simulations. We have used the ASL 5000, which is the simulator, for, for some time here at the University of Sao Paulo. And I used it in the past to just simulation sessions, informal simulation sessions for, for the residents, for the fellows. And we hadn't been using them recently, but we have used in the past. So we had the cases. So the Delphi went, so we, we chose the scenarios and tried to use a, a competency list to see what, top, what topics we thought were really important that residents could demonstrate that they were competent on. So we, we had a, a list of competencies for each of the scenarios and we sent so this was hard because, I mean, we had to send the scenarios to the experts, but they were not seeing the simulator. So we had lots of pictures from the ventilator screen and how the simulator was set up. And then what questions we asked residents. And, and then we had to say what were acceptable responses. Many of the, many of the tasks are really like make adjustments to the ventilator and, and for this case, and we don't give them a lot of, to make it. Uh, a good adjustment. It, you don't. It's not very directive. So, for example, it could be an ARDS case where they have to decrease the tidal volume. So we we actually tested all changes that needed to be made in order to bring the tidal volume into a, a range that was acceptable or recommended. But also how much, for example, you had to increase in respiratory rate to compensate and not 
generated a lot of acidosis. So this was complex because we, we sent the experts like several pictures of the scenarios and the range of adjustments. And we had to explain what we expected the residents to do. Uh, and then we, I think we did three or four rounds of suggestions and um, questions that were trimmed out or changed to be more clear to the residents. So it was a back and forth process that took several months to complete. Yeah, I'm sure that there were many layers and conversations back and forth about different different people's feelings about layers of correct answers, or even I was curious about how did you even pick the scenarios or pick the competencies that that you wanted to test, because you can't test all of the things, and already this test was going to last 50 minutes, so that's pretty long. So how did you even prioritize what topics to use for this group? I guess we were focusing on typical cases that we see that, that are challenging for residents. So for example, I've used this example before. So it's an ARDS case and how do you manage that case and how do you, and, and I think this was an important topic, for example, because it's something that has several randomized control trials showing that there is a, a, a good strategy or a better strategy that should be used as opposed to ventilating without any of those criteria. So we, we had an ARDS case. We also see that residents suffer a little bit when it's a COPD case where there's a, a resistance is really high. And then they all read in a book that respiratory rate should be low, right? So everybody knows this recipe. So as you lower the respiratory rate, then acidosis will ensue. And how do you manage that? So no textbook will tell you what uh, new adjustments you do. And because there is no recipe, right? It will depend on the, on the patient. We wanted to make sure that we had a, a COPD case and we wanted to include a, a case of a patient who was winning the winning phase or mechanical ventilation liberation. We had to prioritize and we picked the cases that we see more often and where we see that basic concepts can probably make a big difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Highest impact, it sounds like. Which case was your favorite? I think my favorite is the COPD case because I, I think it's the one that everyone thinks they know exactly what they should be doing. And it's always so challenging. We, we are a tertiary hospital here at the University of Sao Paulo. So when our COPD cases are really severe COPD patients, people who are waiting for a transplant. So when they need mechanical ventilation, it's really challenging to manage them. So that was, I guess, my favorite. Mm -hmm. What did you find, you know, most challenging about the process of building the cases and doing this Delphi process? I suppose I think the most challenging thing was making sure that even when we we were trying to make the, the assessment as as practical as possible, right? We wanted to make it look like a, the real thing, and we wanted to make sure that we were measuring, uh, really measuring if residents knew what to do in that. Uh, specific scenario. I think I always worried a little bit that we could be directing them a little bit. Right? So mm -hmm. you say, so they might know that we, that, so this is ARDS case. I know what they want. They want me to lower the tidal volume or, but that that's fine. Right. I, I hope they know that if it's ARDS case, you need to lower tidal volume. So I think the, the biggest challenge was believing that, that the assessment would actually measure bedside skills in mechanical ventilation. But I, at the end, I, I think I was pretty confident that, that we did that. So mm -hmm. I was really happy with the results. 
Yeah, I mean, it sounds like even in the context of the ARDS case, not 100% of the residents got the questions correct, right? So there still was room for them to learn. And I'm sure that by doing simulation, it at least got made it closer to reality than, you know, in a, in a multiple choice type environment, it seems like. And you mentioned you had some prior experience with using the ASL simulator. Did you run into any technical challenges with running the simulations itself? Or, and how did you train your instructors to run it and also score consistently amongst the trainees? Right. Yeah. So we had used the ASL before for research projects and also for, for teaching. So I was pretty used to using it. And I think that training new people to use the simulator is at, at first it can be a little scary. I think people who are not too worried about, I, so some of the students were like, okay, but this is a computer. I have to do this on a computer. I was like, no, no, don't worry. So we, after we, we because it, the, the interface for the user is really, I think it's really user-friendly and we only had two examiners. So I think this was something that was, I mean, for the research project, it was very good to have only two people. I guess when we, we think about how can we turn this idea into something you can actually implement in a in a medical ICU or in a, in a uh, residency or fellowship program, then it would be interesting to see how easy you can teach more people how to use the simulator and then apply it to for assessments or for training residents. But I don't think it's very hard to, to learn how to use it, but you really have to let me take the time. I think the one thing that also worked for, for us was taking a long, long time developing the scripts so, to make sure that everything was really standardized. And also during the Delphi process, we realized like what were possible, many possible correct answers. I mean, because I mean, when you're making an adjustment to a ventilator, if you increase, I don't know, the, the pressure during pressure control ventilation, and then the tidal volume goes up, how much is it okay to, I mean, how, what is the level for that? specific case that would be okay to to increase or decrease and how do you compensate with respiratory rate so we had to i think what worked for us was first taking a long time figuring out what were many possible correct answers and then one other thing that we did was we told residents that they could only change two or and sometimes two or three settings because then mm -hmm. it, you know what then Otherwise, people will like change the rise time just a little bit and change. So they will change many parameters just a little bit. And we wanted to make sure that for that scenario, for example, if you need to decrease tidal volume, that they had to do it and they would not be distracted by other things. So I think taking the time to figure out what are possible correct answers in that scenario is really important if you're using it as an assessment. I guess if you're using this for, for teaching, then... It would be fun even to see if maybe maybe a fellow or a resident could come up with a setting that we didn't anticipate that also works. So so I think that would be also valuable. Yeah, that's a good point that, yeah, for the purposes of assessment, you have to put in the effort ahead of time to define all the possible range of correct answers that will be acceptable so that you have uniformity amongst your instructors and the scoring. But then if it's just purely teaching, then yeah, you can play off of the script and go in different directions. And we always joke that it's like a choose your own adventure book, right? You can go in like 10 different directions, but 
sometimes you have to gather them closer and give them some parameters like no the attending won't let you do this so you have to only choose from a couple of different options yeah no definitely it sounds like so much effort and work and detail had to go into the preparation before you could even implement the the project so I want to like recognize how much effort went into it and then I was curious too were the instructors able to give feedback to the residents at the end of their at the end of the simulation or, or did did residents get any information on how they performed or once they did the assessment they just would leave the room and never know how it went yeah so uh, that's a great question and uh, we, we didn't give them feedback and this was also a tough choice because i thought that for the project it was important that they didn't know how they did and what were like the correct answers so we would contaminate for the other residents although mm -hmm. we, we told everyone please don't comment on the questions with other residents but we wanted to make sure that this would be as impartial as possible i think now for implementing this uh the the results so we we did all this because we wanted to identify gaps and also have a, an assessment that we we think will really measure competence in mechanical ventilation i, I think now we want to do it in a way that we can give feedback and we actually have a, a new project that is pivoting this assessment into a, an online simulator. Mm -hmm. And then residents have to, it's the same cases, almost everything is the same, it can be identical, but almost everything is the same. And when they try it, they see the result and they have another chance to try again. So mm -hmm. this is as close as the feedback that we are using now in a new project. I think this is really cool, right? You, it tells you, you got this wrong, go back again and, and try again. And at the end, after they try to three times, if they, if they get it all right, they will know they got it right. If they didn't, they will see the, what we expected. So this is something that we are incorporating in, in a new project, but for this one, we were, we weren't sure if this would contaminate the results. So we chose not. So it would be that for this new project, it's almost a little bit self-directed learning yes. or they can do it asynchronously and and go through the process of identifying where their gaps are and try again and look things up yes yes it will be completely on demand so they have they have access to the platform for a period of time and they have to complete the cases once they start the examination they have to be there for the whole hour to finish it up but they, they can do it in their own time and they can try again. So we, again, for the educational project, we record the first attempt, how well they did on the first attempt, but we also record if they got it right after they, they had a second chance. How did you come up with this new simulator, the online simulator? Where did that come from? It, it, it's, a, it's a simulator that was created by a colleague of ours here in Brazil from, his name is Marcelo Alcantara. He is from the University of Ceará at the northeast part of Brazil. And he has the simulator for a few years. And so we started a partnership to, to create a, an exam. So replicate this examination in that simulator as a new project. And he's one of the investigators in the project. And it's, I think it, 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 it turned out to be even cooler than the, I mean, the simulator, I, I love the ASL 5000 because, I mean, you see, you actually see the ventilator connected to the simulator and air goes into the piston. So it's really as, as close as you get from ventilator, ventilating a patient. But the online simulator is so 
flexible and it's on demand and you can do it on your own time. So I think it became a very cool examination in the end. Yeah, that's really neat and and has the potential for dissemination amongst so many trainees, right? That's the, the beauty of, of that. So yeah, definitely look forward to that. It will be really cool to see how it plays out. So now let's get on to some of your results. I saw that in the pilot testing, intensivists that you did pilot testing in scored 8.2 on the simulation-based assessment. Was that surprising to you? Did you want them to score 100% or were you happy with 8.2? Is it what you expected? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I was surprising and it was interesting to see that the the thing is of the, the parameters for a correct answer were really like very objective. So you have to, I don't know, tidal volume has to be between four and eight for this case. And if it's 8.1, it's incorrect. <laughs> so what I think what happens is not the mistakes I wasn't there because I didn't want to be there to, I didn't want to interfere, but the examiner told me, so these were really, some people were really like knowledgeable people in mechanical ventilation. So they would do, I don't know, stuff. So it's a post, post-operative case and the tidal volume is a little low. So the expectation was increase the tidal volume because I mean, the plateau pressure is low and the, the patient has a normal lung. So why not? But then in that particular case, the intensivist said, I think it's fine if the tidal volume is five mLs per kilogram and left, left it like that. And it was so many of the mistakes were, I don't know, I don't want to say silly mistakes, but it were, I think mistakes that could happen even if you, if you know a lot and you think you're being tested. So maybe you think this is a tricky question. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I was really surprised. It didn't look like it was something... They, the mistakes were in different areas, so they were not making the same mistake on the same question, mm-hmm. because I think that would raise a red flag that mm-hmm. maybe that question is is not so good. But I, I was a little surprised, yes, that this happened. And I think it happened, the the people who were intensivists, but, but not very known for their knowledge in mechanical ventilation did better than the, mm. the big experts that we tested. Huh, so interesting, right? What a reflection on practice variation amongst attendings. That was a whole research project to happen there. <laughs> yeah, and I was, I was thinking maybe they would never do this in real life, but because you're, I think this is something, simulation will never take away the fact that as much as it mimics reality, it's not reality. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. maybe people behave a little bit differently just because they know it's a test or they know it's a simulation and they know there are expectations. Some of these mistakes were like, there's an expectation that I do something really cool here. And we were <laughs> expecting the real basic right. change or yeah. maybe not, sometimes it was no change. This is good. Leave it as mm. is. Yeah. So there maybe was some kind of bias there just yeah. by being in the, in the examination environment. So now tell us about your results. The main goal, again, was to develop this simulation-based assessment for mechanical ventilation, and then also to look at how it compared, right, to the multiple choice exam, I think. Yes. So what we found was that the the performance of residents was really variable. We used the standardized score. So there were 32 questions or 32 items in the examination. And the mean score was 6.2, which is not very high, right? 
And we had a lot of variations. So some of the items had ceiling effects. So everyone, most people got correct answers in questions like, what is the ventilatory mode? And we would hide the, everything in the screen at the ventilator except for the waveform. So we had like this piece of paper that covered where the ventilator writes up the, the name of the ventilatory mode and, and all, the, all the other parameters. They had to look at the screen and, and the waveforms and say, what is the ventilatory mode? So these questions, for example, had very high percentage of correct answers while others had very low percentages of what we call a floor effect. So for example, calculating the respiratory resistance was one of the, the questions that had more mistakes. And it could be any kinds of mistakes from mismeasuring the peak pressure incorrectly or making the calculations incorrectly. And we had a calculator there for them and we told them they had to calculate and they could use paper and pen and, and some people missed it. So a lot of variation and, and what we thought was also really interesting for some of the, some, some important topics. So as, as you mentioned before, 67% of the people got the, the residents got the correct answer for using low tidal volumes or protective ventilation in, in patients with ARDS. So 30 something of the residents got it wrong. Because it was not just a question, what type of volume do you use? They had to go and make the adjustment. So I think this is what's different from using a multiple choice question. If I write a question and this is an ARDS patient and what is the recommended type of volume, I would hope and I suspect vast majority of the residents would know that the range is between four to eight mLs per kilogram. But when you actually have to make the adjustment in the ventilator, some of them didn't do it, didn't change the tidal volume, for example. So they would get it wrong because they never thought of making a correction on the tidal volume. So what mm -hmm. we saw was a lot of variation and the percent correct in the, among the, the items. And as you already mentioned, we also had multiple choice tests we used. At, at the beginning and at the end of the rotation. So they scored much better in the multiple test um, examination than in the simulation-based assessment. This is exactly what our perception was. And the reason we decided to do this project because we had this impression that people do really well on the tests, but then when they actually have to do it in real life, it's harder. And did you find the same kind of floor and ceiling effect with the multiple choice exam as well? Yes, we didn't report it because there were so many tables, but yes, we had, for example, the lowest percentage of correct answers in the multiple choice was also, what do you have to do to correct this asynchrony? And it was the same type of asynchrony we used on the simulation-based assessment, which was missed efforts. So for the multiple test examination, we had a picture of the ventilator screen and there's a missed effort there and they had to suggest, so options on how to fix that. For the simulation, there were no options, right? We said, if there's something wrong, you can make changes now. And then this is also something that they got wrong, that high percentage of wrong answers on both examinations. Mm -hmm. So it was also like an ineffective trigger, like they needed to figure out if there's auto peep or change the trigger sensitivity or something like that. Yes, yes. It was mostly a, a very obstructive patient with a mm -hmm. very high respiratory rate. So Usually mm -hmm. most, what most people did on the practical exam, on the simulation exam was just reduce the respiratory rate and that would go away. Mm -hmm. Okay. So some people figured it out, but it sounds yes. like it was yes. a, 
Yeah, but not I think, everybody. I was think thirty-one percent of the of the residents made the right adjustment to fix the problem. So now, when you step back from this and you look at these results, if you were going to advise somebody who's running education in in their respiratory ICU or medical ICU to uh, how to identify those most common gaps, would you tell them? you need to use simulation-based assessment because you're going to find something different than in the multiple choice assessment? Or did both of them show you the same types of gaps? I think if they had the resources, I think the simulation-based assessment is superior. It will show you gaps that you don't notice when you do a multiple test Hmm. uh, examination. The reality is, of course, it's harder to do that. So it's so easy to to do a multiple choice examination, right? But I think if we want to take teaching of mechanical ventilation to the next level. I think simulation is something that is here to stay. And it's not just our paper. The scholar has published several other papers on this matter. And I think the, the people from Schrodel, we did a, a podcast, a scholarly episode with her. So her project was using the simulator to, she used an assessment as well, but it was also as a teaching tool. So it was deliberate practice with the simulator. And it also showed that this was a good strategy to teach mechanical ventilation and bring trainees to a level where you can say they achieve mastery and they may not have all the correct answers, but they have most of the correct answers and they are meeting a a minimum passing standard. So I think simulation is here to stay in mechanical ventilation, definitely, as it is in many areas of medical education. Yeah. So that actually like segues exactly into the next question I was going to ask you is how can we better train our learners to be able to apply now, since we're seeing that there's this disconnect between their knowledge and actually doing things at the bedside. So it sounds like one possibility is to incorporate simulation into the way we teach, not only as assessment tool, but also kind of as part of deliberate practice. Is there anything else different than you're, that you're planning then and you're given this knowledge that we now have of where the gaps are. I guess if, I mean, I think simulation will do like a great job for teaching this. I'm really, really passionate about mechanical ventilation, so my bias, but I I think one of the beauties of it is, I mean, if if you're very careful at the bedside and you adjust the alarms, you can show in practice how small changes in adjustments have, what effect they have for the patient. So for example, you can show the impact of increasing respiratory rate, for example, in a patient with obstructive lung disease will generate auto PIP. And if you're there with the resident and you increase the respiratory rate, they will see that it's beginning to create auto PIP and then you decrease it and that's fine. I think if you don't have simulation, you can be very careful at the bedside showing residents how small changes make big differences. I think it's one strategy that we could use. I think the other one, if maybe case-based teaching could also work, right? Instead of, instead of using didactics where we show how to ventilate patients with this disease, with that disease, maybe always working with cases and then asking trainees to suggest what changes they would make and then anticipating what problems would come. I think the second mm-hmm. step is always where, where trainees are unsure of what to do. So for example, if you tell a trainee, so this is ARDS case and they reduce tidal volume. So the next step is, what if you see respiratory acidosis? How do you correct that? So mm-hmm. I mean, if you if you create a case that is interactive, even if it's not in the simulator, I mm-hmm. think that that could be also one way of doing it. But I think 
with online simulators, there, there, there are going to be so many opportunities to incorporate simulation into teaching that I think I, this would be my first option if mm -hmm. it's available. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always call that that last part that you were talking about, like a mental simulation, right? Like imagine you have a case like this. So it's costs nothing, but it just takes like coming up with ideas. But I agree with you, like to be able to get to the point where we have a high quality online simulators to be able to make it available and manipulate the cases and walk with the trainees through it. That's the ideal, even though it's, it's lower fidelity because you don't have the ventilator there. I do think there's something tactile about the ventilator that changes it. It's true, but it's a trade-off between the tactile realistic piece versus making it readily available and, and open access for everybody. So there's like pros and cons for both things. How can you imagine right. um, adapting this kind of program for a higher level learner, like a fellow or even like a, even attending since we see that we have such variability? You know, I think many of these scenarios could be used for other levels as well. The thing we want to do first is we, because we also train respiratory therapists in the mm -hmm. hospital. We, so the first adaptation we want to do, and there's really no big adaptation because all of the items in the scenario, they're all related to mechanical ventilation. So there's, there's no questions on, would you give corticosteroids or anything like that? So it's all, all about mechanical ventilation. So. I think the scenarios would work well for trainees in other levels as well. I guess if we were dealing with higher level fellows, I would probably, I don't know, maybe the first two scenarios, I really like measure the compliance and resistance. Maybe we don't need to do that. Although I was really surprised with the low rate of correct answers or re resistance, I would probably add more asynchrony and possibly a, another case where the adjustment of mechanical ventilation could be challenging. And maybe another case of obstructive lung disease in a different moment of ventilation, maybe a patient in the transition from control to spontaneous. I think that there, like, there's a, a really large set of other questions we could ask, right? And maybe looking at the competency list that we use, we could figure out maybe this is something we want to measure and we didn't. But there are many, many other ways of exploring but I guess many of these questions would work for other levels, even attendings, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah, like you said, we might be surprised at the the results if we even gave the exact same test to a higher level fellow or, or to the attendings. But I think that's a phenomenal idea to expand it to the respiratory therapists and um, and see how their responses are there as well, because they're spending the whole day at the ventilator. And... What did you, as an investigator, as a, as a medical educator, investigator, what did you learn from designing and implementing this novel assessment, you know, from the whole process? Like, what did you come away with? I think working as a team with, with the respiratory therapists was really, really cool in this project. And, and Fatima had like a, a tremendous role. It's her baby, this project, and she was so happy to be able to complete it. I think one thing that was really crucial that we learned was spending a lot of time figuring out the scenarios and the correct answers. I think this was crucial because, I mean, at, at some point, it's a little frustrating. So the Delphi would so we would send the questions, it would take a long time to come back and then we have to make changes. And it can be, for her, it was a little frustrating. She was like, oh, we, we can never start this. I was like, no, don't worry, because I think this is time well spent. So I think mm -hmm. 
uh, if you're doing a project, I think we want to make sure that the scientific methodology is robust in medical education as in any area. So I think it was really important to take in the time to make sure that the examination was really standardized and that we tested and piloted and sent it to other experts. I think the final examination is so much better than the beginning. The cases are more or less the same, but I think we figured where we were asking questions, maybe in a cryptic way that people would mm -hmm. never know what we exactly we were asking them or not realizing that there was some other way of making an adjustment and, and making it correct and making sure that the patient was safe and that was a, a, a good choice of parameters. So I think spending time with this rigor and making sure that the assessment was objective was really important. I think it was mm -hmm. the biggest takeaway. That's a good reminder, I think. Um... As, as educators, we want to always like implement quickly, right? We want to like teach the people who are in front of us, but definitely in order to generate good data, to be able to build good programs, it's so important to trust the process and to be deliberate, like you're saying, and be really rigorous. So thank you for that reminder. And it, it sounds like you had a, a phenomenal team. So I have like loved reading this and I have really appreciated this time that you've been able to give us in thinking about this. And I look really forward to the next version, I want to use your online simulator. So <laughs> I look forward to seeing more about that, Dr. Ferreira. Thank you so much for, for chatting with me today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been uh, very, I, I learned more things as we discussed today and it was really fun. Thank you so much. Yeah. And thank you all to our listeners for tuning into this week's episode of Scholarly. If you liked this episode, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To listen to more episodes and see show notes from today's discussion, you can visit our webpage at atsjournals.org backslash scholarly. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.